Well, our catechism lesson this evening comes from Articles 3 and 4 of the Canons of Dort. But first, I'd like to read with you from Acts chapter 16. Now, Acts 16 describes the second missionary journey of Paul. And at this point, Paul uh, and Barnabas have come to a parting of the ways. They seem to have had a disagreement as to whether to uh, bring John Mark with them. God used that um, difference of opinion to send out not one but two sets of missionaries. So Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and and some others, um, go one way, while um, Barnabas and John Mark go another way. Looking at Acts 16, starting at verse 6, we read, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Amen. Thus far the reading of of God's word relating that part of Paul's missionary work. Now, Article 3 and 4 of the Canons of Dort remind us of a particular portion of our confession concerning uh, the bringing of the gospel. In order that the people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people He wishes and at the time He wishes. By this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? God's anger remains on those who do not believe this gospel. But those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through Him from God's anger and from destruction, and they receive the gift of eternal life. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ, it is no coincidence that churches which fail to acknowledge God's sovereignty over those who would be saved, God's sovereignty in the process of coming to Christ, are the very same churches that do the most goofy things. Consider some of the ways that Uh, Trendy churches seek to impart the gospel to people, to convey the importance of caring for the creation, 
I read of one congregation that uh, all the members dressed up as animals and formed a parade line to amp up the kids. One youth minister entered the sanctuary on a dirt bike. One innovative minister I personally know thought that the gospel was eh, a little too commonplace to the people. And so, instead of preaching a sermon to them, he recited from memory the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Other ministers manipulate the congregation's response by coordinating their sermon with video clips from popular movies or use the praise band to bring music that will manipulate the emotions of the people. We read about that stuff or maybe encounter it now and then and we wonder, what are they thinking? But I can tell you what they're thinking. They're thinking that it is up to them to get folks excited about God. That it is their responsibility to get people to commit to the Lord and that they somehow have the power to draw people into a commitment to Christ. Whenever people believe that they have some of the power or the responsibility, they start getting not just creative but absolutely desperate. And they should be desperate because frankly we have no power over the hearts of those before us. And if that's what we're trying to do, if we're trying to bring them, if we're trying to to force them or lead them or encourage them or sell to them a relationship with the Lord, we've got a far bigger task before us than we could possibly accomplish. And so it's no wonder that they get not just creative but downright goofy about how they try to do that. However, there is no reason for us to feel superior. We're not. In fact, left to our own devices, we'll, we'll start thinking there's power in our weakness. That's the foolishness of the heart of mankind. The two articles we just read from the canons aim to silence our foolishness by reminding us that there is no one who can or will be saved unless God himself brings them. He's the one who has to do 100% of the work. He calls folks into salvation. He is both the subject and the focus of the call. It is His power that moves people to respond the way they must. Now, when we began considering the canons of Dort last week, we saw that God is the one who provides the salvation that we never could earn. He does for us what we never could do of ourselves. Today, we take that to the next logical step to see how He gives that salvation to us, seeing how this also is entirely the work of God. God sovereignly saves men. Kids, what does that word mean? Sovereign. Sovereign means that He's in charge. He's in control. He has both the authority and the ability. God sovereignly saves men by the life-giving ministry of the gospel. That's our theme. And the first thing we need to see about that life-giving ministry of our God is how it is sent at God's sovereign direction. The first words of Article 3 in the canons are powerful. And that the people may be brought to faith. Notice how passive that is. That the people may be brought to faith. God. That's an excellent reflection of what the Bible teaches us about how we are saved. Those who are at peace with God receive that salvation passively. They are recipients of a gift, not obtainers of a goal. 
or conquerors of a challenge. They are brought to saving faith as those who are weak and needy and powerless. And the one who brings them is God Himself. Salvation is not given by one person to another. That's where the Catholic Church went astray, isn't it? They started thinking they had the power to bestow salvation at their command, at their uh, discretion. But that's not what the Bible shows us. The Bible shows us that salvation is not something that we can bestow. It is not something that we can create. It's certainly not something we can sell. We receive salvation as a gift from God. He acts and we are brought into the faith that joins us to Christ. And the way God does that, the means He uses, is the preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't say that as one who simply has a vested interest in exalting preaching. In fact, I think most ministers, if they're honest, if they've been doing it for a while, they would acknowledge that there is probably no part of our ministerial calling that reveals to us our weakness more than preaching. We spend all week studying the passages before us, trying to figure out the best way to arrange the presentation, the best way to explain difficult concepts, the best way to get people to to not just understand but take hold of it. And then we get up there and that carefully formed argument falls apart in our hands. That illustration that we were so proud of on Wednesday seems absolutely foolish to us on Sunday morning. We do our absolute best and then so often we sit down afterward and we pray silently, Lord, it would be great if you could use that anyway. And we've all been in the pew. So we know how hard it is to actually pay attention. Especially for not just a couple minutes, but for 20, 25, 30 minutes. And if your mind wanders, how hard it is to get drawn back and how difficult it is to not allow our attention to wander to this person's outfit or that person's crying or some other distraction. Preaching is really not the means most preachers would design for bringing people to God, but it's the way God has chosen. He hasn't chosen to use the creation to bring people to salvation. Romans 1 tells us that the creation is used to reveal God to people. That's why they are so vehement about their unbelieving scientific theories. It's because the creation offends them. Everything they look at, every aspect of the world God has made, reminds them that He made it, that He designed it, that He upholds it, and that offends them. So they've got to find some way to cover it over. But as much as it reveals God, as effectively as it reveals God, it doesn't reveal salvation. It doesn't lead them to Christ. Nor does their conscience. The conscience of man afflicts him because of his sin. He has to work hard to silence the voice that condemns their sins. But it doesn't lead them to Christ. It doesn't show them where their salvation is found. Nor can any work done by mere men. Logic can convince folks to do a whole host of things, but not to seek peace with God. Entertainment can draw people along like like a rope, but it can't save them. 
Psychological manipulation can convince a person to betray his country or his loved ones, but not to seek God for salvation. Our sin, our rebellion, our inherent hatred for God are too ingrained in the soul of fallen man, are far more powerful than any argument or manipulation that we could attain. Only God can overcome it. And he has chosen in his sovereignty and his wisdom to use preaching to that end. Understand, God provided absolutely everything necessary for us to be saved when he sent his son. Jesus died to to pay the penalty for our sin. For every one of our sins. The original sins and all of the actual sins of commission, of omission, spoken, thought, desired, the whole works for every one of his people. And not only that, but before he paid that penalty, he lived the absolutely perfect life of obedience, of righteousness, of holiness. And every bit of that is imputed, is counted as belonging to those who trust in Jesus. But that's key. We have to trust in him. We have to have faith. We cannot be saved without it. And the faith by which we are saved, God gives to us. God forms in us by preaching. We learn that, for instance, in 1 Peter 1, where he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then he says, This word is the good news that was preached to you. In Romans 10, which tells us that we must believe, that we must have faith to be saved Romans 10 tells us how will they call on him in whom they've not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching. We must hear of Jesus in order to believe in him and the way that we need to hear is through the preaching of the word. And that preaching is not just about him. When the word of God is faithfully preached, it is Christ that we hear. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we're told, Paul says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Because God speaks through the word that is preached, When his people hear, that word changes them. Their ears hear the word and his Holy Spirit enlightens their minds to understand. Their minds process these truths and their hearts take hold with a faith that no man could form. And then having brought us to himself through his word, God uses that preaching to disciple us. The preaching of scripture starts to change the way we think begins to alter our priorities, begins to transform the way that we act, we begin to reflect the image of the Savior through the word that He causes to have preached to us. Now that tells us something about the nature of faithful preaching, doesn't it? At its heart, preaching is a proclamation of the gospel. Narrowly speaking, which is to say, a proclamation of the misery of our sin that we cannot escape on our own. A proclamation of all that Christ has done to deliver us from that misery and a calling out to people to trust in Christ that they might be saved. The faithful preaching of the word must, be, must include that narrow focus of the gospel, but also the broad focus of the gospel. 
Because the gospel, you know, Jesus said, disciple the nations, not only baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands, all of them. And that means the the preaching of the gospel is not only come to Jesus and be saved, it's also having come to Jesus and been saved. Now work in this way and speak in this way and interact in this way and raise your families in this way and submit to those over you in this way. It's something that encompasses all of life as we learn bit by bit, day by day, to bring all of life under the authority of Christ our King. Preaching the gospel proclaims both that narrow gospel and that broad gospel. Because as Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And therefore the the word of the Lord, as it applies to all of life, has to stand at the heart of the gospel. Hear that well. Man's wisdom and insight and understanding is powerless. Young people, there will come a time when you're visiting a friend's church or maybe you're uh, being led to move to a different place and you're trying out churches and you'll hear a preacher who reads the word and then shuts the Bible and starts talking to you about his insights or his understandings or the insights of the psychologists or the scientists or the sociologists. That's not the preaching of the word. That doesn't have power. It doesn't have life. 1 Corinthians 1 says that the the Word of God faithfully preached, the Gospel faithfully preached, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it is God who determines when and to whom, or where and to whom, that Word is sent. Romans 10 verse 15 says, How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God is the one who raises up, calls, and ordains men to preach the gospel. In Acts 13, we hear how the church at Antioch was gathered to worship the Lord, and God's Spirit led the church to set apart Barnabas and Paul to go forth preaching. So with prayer, they consecrated the men and sent out those whom God had chosen, which is why, which is why our ministers are not randomly selected. Appointed by a bureaucracy? No. We prayerfully seek out whom God has called to lead the church, having examined the men. And then we pray that God would use the vote, the discernment of the congregation to decide whether that man has been called to this congregation. It's not, it's not a democratic process. It's a seeking after God's will. Look at how, look at how Paul in our scripture reading was guided. God didn't give Paul and Silas a road map of where they were to go. Instead, he guided them providentially. In some cities, they were welcomed, and so they stayed and they preached the word. In others, they were persecuted, and so they shook the dust from their sandals and moved on. Later, God used circumstances to separate Paul and Barnabas And so Paul took Silas preaching throughout Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas took Mark and and went and preached in Cyprus. And when Paul sought to enter Asia, God wouldn't allow it. He doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us in this account what those circumstances were. But in some manner, God prevented them from entering Asia. 
They were forced to skirt around the western edge. Likewise, when they went to go into the region of Bithynia. Verse 7 says, The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. But then they received a vision. A man from Macedonia, from Greece, saying, Come over and help us. God had opened that path, desiring that the word be preached there. So Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, they went sailing toward Europe and God caused the gospel there to be heard and to bear fruit and to gather the disciples. You see, it is God who determines where the gospel goes and where it does not. He determined in ages past to bring the gospel to this land, America. That was one of the main reasons that Christopher Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. It wasn't merely to gather riches. That was, that was the sales pitch that allowed him to get the money for the, the ships. But if you read Columbus's actual writings themselves, one of his main concerns was that the gospel be preached to cultures where it had not yet made inroads. That was a reason why many of the early settlers came to this land. They knew that this land was filled with Natives who had not heard the gospel and who therefore had no salvation and they wanted to see the good news preached to them. So God opened the door and they came and the gospel bore fruit. And God guides ministers today, both by providence and by explicit calls. As I said, I was brought here to Grace URC through an explicit call of the church and yet he led the church to extend that call by providentially leading members of the committee to find some of my sermons. And where he sends the preaching of the word, it is God who determines who will hear. Notice, when they went to Philippi, God led Paul and Silas to the riverbank. Why? They figured there were probably some Jews there on the Sabbath day praying and reading scripture because that's what they had seen elsewhere. That was a common practice of the Jews. And when they got there, you know what? There were a lot of people who weren't at the river. But by God's providence, this group was. And when they proclaimed the gospel to them, not everyone took hold of that word. But some, like Lydia, did. And why? Because God opened her heart to it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she took hold of it so firmly that she asked to be baptized. She wanted wanted that clear evidence that she had been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so it is... Not just in the apostolic age, my friends, but in every age. It is God who guides the preaching of the word. It is God who uses the preaching of the word. It is God who draws to himself. You see, from start to finish, God is sovereign over who comes to Christ. There's no way to be saved except by the way that God ordains. And God has ordained to use the word preached to form faith in the hearts of his people. And that means we need to pray fervently that God would continue preparing and raising up and calling men to preach the gospel. That God would call those men to preach in new places as well as old. That he would prepare them and also prepare the way before them, working in the hearts of those who will hear, making them receptive to that word. So let us pray also that God will bring more people to hear, that he will show us Who has been cultivated among our friends, among our neighbors, among our co-workers, among the people whom God sets before us? Let us not just live the gospel before them, but let us 
boldly. Ask them what they believe and where their comfort is. And if something should happen to them, are they sure that they're going to be okay? Are they confident that God will let them into heaven? And if so, why? Yeah, you'll get some people that roll their eyes and think you're a little bit weird. So what? Look at the stakes. If you don't speak, if no one speaks, they're going to die at some point. Isn't it better that they've had opportunity to consider? And as he answers our prayers, as he begins bringing in new people, or as he allows people in our sphere of influence to hear us and to start asking questions that that maybe get us thinking and challenge us a little bit, praise him. Give him thanks. Give him the gratitude that he deserves because he's the one who does it. It's not by our boldness and our creativity and our wisdom that people start to to come to Christ. It's not by our stick-to-itiveness that they come in those doors. No, it's by His mercy. And when their lives are changed and their marriages are strengthened and their children start to be discipled, that's not us. That's the Lord using the Word as it's as it's proclaimed certainly here, but also as it's proclaimed from house to house through family visitations, and as it's proclaimed individual to individual by mutual discipleship, God will use that word to not only bring people to faith, but to build them up in the faith. It is His work, not ours. We are merely instruments in His hands. Yes, and let Him be praised especially for that response. Because this ministry He sends is a ministry offering God's glorious deliverance, which is the other thing we see here. The offer of deliverance, the offer of salvation is made every single time God's Word is preached. Did you know that? That's true, certainly, when the sermon is about forgiveness of sins and justification and reconciliation with God. Clearly, the gospel is proclaimed and people are called to respond to Christ and be saved there, but also... When the sermon is about prayer, or creation, or judgment, or marriage, or work, the preacher is still offering salvation because he is calling people to acknowledge their own weakness and their own inability, and he's calling them to acknowledge God, to trust in God, to follow after God, and that is always a call to faith in Christ. And we who hear will respond every single time. In catechism this morning, in my catechism class, we, uh, we talked for a minute about how no matter what the sermon is, whenever the word is preached, and also whenever church discipline is carried out, the people who see it will respond. Because this is 2 Corinthians 2. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance of death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Which means that whenever they hear the word, they're either going to respond with a living faith that draws them closer to Christ, or they're going to respond with a hatred for Christ, which ultimately will condemn them, but will leave them without excuse. Right? So they're going to respond... God's word is going to do what God has ordained. Now left to themselves, every single person will reject Christ and his gospel. Article 4 said, God's anger remains on those who do not believe the gospel. That sounds harsh. 
But in reality, that's what every one of us deserves. We're sinful. We possess a nature that's, that's not just fallen, but rebellious. Of ourselves, we will give in to that sinful nature and reject God. And because God is holy and just, He will give exactly what we deserve. We were created to worship and serve Him, and we've refused. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His punishment. And that's precisely what they will receive who reject the Lord. John 3, verse 18 and 19. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because they prefer the darkness of their sin to the light of Christ, they will be eternally condemned. Beloved, that, that's a terrible truth to consider. But it's a truth of which we must have no doubt. Lest we... blithely, carelessly wander into condemnation saying, I'll get serious about God later. I'll think on these things more when I'm older. I'm not going to worry about that right now. Before you know it, you might be standing in front of those pearly gates and wondering what happened. Where did the time go? I thought I had more. You didn't. Far better is the response of faith. Again, faith is unnatural to the sinful heart. Lydia was able to understand the gospel and trust Christ only because the Holy Spirit was at work in her heart. But, but, when the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said, what did she do? She believed. She trusted. She sought baptism. She desired to become part of the church. Now, it is the work of God alone that can cause that kind of response. But, even so, we are called to act. Though we know only God can cause us to, when He's at work within us, we're going to respond. We're going to trust in Christ. We're going to reject self-reliance. We're going to refuse to rest in our own wisdom, in our own abilities. We're going to pray... What David prayed in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a beautiful expression of faith. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you do I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And then a little farther on, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That needs to be the response that we have to the gospel. An absolute, wholehearted expression of confidence. And all who respond that way, God promises He has delivered, already has delivered from the wrath due for their sin. Yes, our sins deserve God's wrath, deserve to be cut off from God entirely. But through faith we've been joined to Christ and that means that He already paid the debt. All the good that He did is applied to us. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world 
might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And so the Lord assures us in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame because God promised it. And that's, that's an assurance you can take to the bank. More than that, all who respond with faith to the ministry of the word receive life and love. God offers us more than forgiveness, more than a clean slate and a, a fresh start. Back in John 3, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He takes us who were dead in our sin, calls us into life, and assures us that we will never die, that we will never be condemned, that we will never be separated from Him ever, ever, ever again. In fact, it's more than that. In John 1, He tells us to all who received Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Think on that. Children of the Creator, children of the Sustainer of everything, children of the Great King, how amazing. We should marvel at that. And recognizing that that is the gift that he gives to absolutely everyone who trusts in Christ, we need to tell others about that. And brothers and sisters, this is what God sets before you every single time the word is faithfully preached. How generous of our God. How gracious of our Heavenly Father. Do not scorn such a gift. To do so is to reject the richest gift that man has ever been offered. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we, having been given the offer of such an amazing gift, refuse it, there's nothing more we can say except we deserve everything God has given us in terms of His punishment. Beloved, such an end is unthinkable for one who has heard the truth of the gospel. Therefore, let us pray that every time we hear that gospel, we will receive it with a true and living faith. That we will receive it not as something commonplace, but as an amazing gift that it will fill our hearts with awe and that we will leave that place having heard that glorious truth overflowing with gratitude and with a desire to tell others. And if we ask for that, He's going to give it. And He's going to use us to bring others so that they might hear and they might marvel and they might give praise to God sovereignly saves men by the life-giving ministry of the gospel. That means He uses us as a church. He uses the preaching of the gospel. He uses those who gather people into the preaching of the gospel. But ultimately, He is the one at work. He is the one making it effective. He is the one who saves. And so He deserves all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have blessed us beyond all measure. When we think of what we really deserve in terms of your punishment, huh, we stand in awe that you would love us enough to offer us life. 
and to provide everything necessary to save us. May you, Lord, may you remind us continually of the rich gift we've been given. May you let none of us take lightly the truth of the gospel proclaimed. And Lord, we pray that you would use us not only to bring others to hear, but to magnify your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.